For know this, says the Spirit of the Lord, that I'm hearing the cries, the inner cries of my people. The internal intercession that is goes beyond the flesh or the mind. Just as it was in the days when Israel cried out in the natural For intercession was on their hearts to be delivered. And I say that I'm placing and have placed inside of you an internal intercession. And as I heard the cries of their heart for deliverance, the intercession came up before me as in a desire for deliverance out of the bondage that they were in. And I came and I brought them forth. In like manner there is inside of each one of those who know me and are following me on this path towards an outpouring. There is a cry in your heart. An internal intercession taking place. For these things to be made manifest. And this is why. Very methodically, I'm bringing these types of teachings to you. Because beyond your knowledge, you've been praying them into existence. Just like my children of old prayed and mourned and were of that type in the flesh and intercession crying out for a deliverance. Even so, likewise, in this hour in which I've called those who are born of my Spirit, beyond their own knowledge, beyond that place of understanding that when you're praying in these days, and when I grip your heart, even in worship, it is to bring about the fullness of this outpouring, says the Spirit of the Lord. And those who have doctrine and those who have a place of understanding will stand in like manner as you're hearing now to bring forth these things so that the cries of your heart are answered, so that the intercessor and the teacher are both one, bringing forth a purpose an absolute divine purpose to be fulfilled together, says the Spirit of the Lord. So rejoice in these days that beyond your knowledge, you yourself, those in the pew, those in the seats, those who are watching, beyond your knowledge on a daily basis, your cries are coming up before me. And I'm bringing these things to pass. And you'll see that all these things do work together for your good, says the Spirit of the Lord. Well, I'm here in Florida. And uh, therefore, I need to talk Florida things. So just imagine, Florida is playing Florida State in a football game. And here it is, fourth quarter. Clock is ticking down.
10, 9, 8. And it gets down to 0. And yay, yay. And the final score, Florida 52, Florida State 10. Boy, everybody's all kinds of happy. Well, the Florida people, all kinds of happy. Now, normally, in a situation like that, Florida team would dunk the coach with Gatorade and, you know, they'd cheer and yell as they're walking off the team, running off the field. But what if they didn't do that? What if the offense stayed on the field and huddled up and then lined up for another play? And there's a quarterback and they call another play. And people are like, what? What are you? And the announcers are like, what are they doing down there? The game's over. And then they, they run another play. And then, you know, the Florida State players, they're all confused. They don't know what's going on. So they figure, well, maybe the game's not over. So they, they tackle the runner and all this. And, but the game's over. Florida won. Why would they keep playing? Why would they keep trying to defeat a foe they've already beaten? And that is exactly what is going on in the body of Christ when it comes to spiritual warfare. All too often, the way it is taught, and I've heard this kind of teaching in the past, where we're trying to beat the devil when the devil's already beaten. And in a lot of this teaching that takes place in the body of Christ, believers are assigning to Satan more authority than he has. And because of that, he's able to gain authority. Now, that's very important. Because he's beaten. Now, now he knows this. You know, the Bible says that uh, the demons, they believe there's one God. And they tremble. And demons were talking to Jesus and saying, are you going to torment us before the appointed time? That is, that is mind-boggling to me. The demons are asking, are you going to torment us before the appointed time? It's like the demons know. Our days are numbered. <laughs> but if we can keep them from knowing this, then we're going to be able to move more freely. We have to understand this. Um, we have to understand spiritual warfare the way Jesus and the apostles did. If we're going to have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Book of Acts results in this outpouring and revival, we have to understand it. Which means we're going to have to go beyond a lot of the stuff that's been taught in the body of Christ. And some of these things have been taught so much that they are ingrained in us and we just accept them. And then when we hear them taught, we're like, Amen, praise the Lord, that's right. You know, this morning was a foundation. How that God was revealing to us in His Word. Just like in the Old Testament, when they built the tabernacle. Who knows how long that took. But it was really hard work. Hard labor, cutting down trees, fashioning the wood, um, dyeing the animal skins certain colors, and cutting material, sewing it together on and on and on, melting gold, forming gold, forming silver, making pots and, and pitchers and, and altars and so on and just on and on. And God said, now He told, he told Moses, He said, you do this and I'll meet you there. And so all this time went on until finally... They had finished the tabernacle. 
And the moment they did, God did not wait. <laughs> the moment, the moment they had it done, and Moses and Aaron just stepped in, boom! The cloud came down and covered the tabernacle. The glory of God filled the tabernacle. He was waiting for that moment. God was waiting for that moment so that He could move in. Well, that was the type and shadow for us as far as us mortifying the flesh. We're the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so therefore, as we begin to mortify the flesh, it is not going to be easy. There's all these distractions, all these things, just stuff in life. And it's not not even necessarily sin. It's just stuff that goes on. We have to identify the stuff. God will help us identify the stuff. And, and it's got to be mortified. All that, you know, the like this morning, the example of, uh, you know, burning the bullock. You've got to take its skin and its flesh and its dung outside the camp and burn it as a sin offering. Well, that dung represented all that hidden stuff on the inside that nobody knows but God and us. And sometimes we don't even know some of that stuff is in there. But God will reveal it to us. The more we press into Him, the more we submit to that purging fire, then God begins to reveal these things to us. And um, we do like the Apostle Paul, renounce the hidden things of dishonesty. Because see, guys, we have to understand and truly believe that God is looking at every single one of us, every one of us, and He is waiting for that moment that He can move in with His glory like never before. Move in with His glory like He did with Jesus. Move in and, and put that, that cloud of His presence around us. Some of you have heard the story. Smith Wigglesworth, he gets on a train. He, all he does is get on the train. That was it. He just got on. And this man sitting there cries out, you know, tell me how to be saved. You know, you, you convict me. Well, it wasn't Smith Wigglesworth convicting him. It was that cloud of God's presence on Smith Wigglesworth. See, God is waiting for us to get to that point. And I, let's, let's just be honest here. Sometimes it seems like a pipe dream. Sometimes it seems like, well, I wish that were true. And it's like there's this conflict on the inside. This conflict that says... Well, it is true, but yet, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's true. But if it is true, when's it going to happen? <laughs> and God is saying, you've got to keep purging. You know, you've got to keep pressing in. A lot of things that we don't think are any big deal, a lot of things, things that we will justify that aren't sin, but things that we can keep doing, some of those things are going to have to go, and, and, and at least maybe for a season. But some of those things are going to have to go. You know, Smith Wigglesworth, he did not even want a newspaper in his house. Well, that was before the Internet. That was before everybody had TVs and all this. He didn't even want a newspaper in his house. And now we think, well, that's a little bit extreme. But for him, it wasn't. For him, it wasn't. And quite frankly, it could get to the point to where God will say, look, turn that TV off. You don't, there, there is nothing on that TV you need to watch. Even a good John Wayne movie. There's nothing on that TV. No football game. There's nothing on that TV you need to watch at this point in your life because you need to become that vessel fit for my glory and my presence. Now, I'm convicting myself in this, guys. So, you know, I want you to know I'm here with you. Well, as far as... Um, 
you know, the whole aspect of, of uh, spiritual warfare, there's a lot that, that we just, we don't understand the way we should. Now, I say that as though 100% of people don't understand it. Some may, some may not. But I think back to, um, you know, my life when I first was introduced to the whole concept of, uh, you know, the gifts of the Spirit, the speaking in tongues, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, I mean, all these kind of things, signs, wonders, miracles, and so forth, and, and spiritual warfare. And I heard a lot of things that were taught. Well, see, when it comes to moving into this outpouring and revival, programs, they're going to keep the soulish part of a Christian happy and satisfied because you're going to have this idea, we're doing a lot for God, and now we're just waiting for God you know, to pour out. So, you know, programs can work to an extent. You can get people saved and so forth. But a program is not going to usher in an outpouring and revival. The only thing that's going to do that is God moving through us as we submit to the fullness of who He is so that the outpouring can take place. The outpouring is going to come through us. You know, um, when you think about it like this, after Jesus rose from the dead, He appeared to hundreds and hundreds of people. The Bible tells us, and the Apostle Paul writes about it, how that um, in one particular situation, Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. Now, we don't know how many people He appeared to in total. It could have been 800. It could have been 1,000. You know, from the time that He rose, the time He ascended back to the Father. But let's just work with that number 500. So, over 500 people have a literal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. But only 120 mortified the flesh enough to be in the place of the outpouring. Now think about that. See, every one of us, I have no doubt that we would think, well, if I had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, you better believe I'd be there in that upper room. Well, there was only 120. There could have been more. So where were the rest of these people? We don't know. Now, maybe at some point they got filled with the Holy Ghost. We really don't know. But we have to get to that place of being willing to mortify whatever would keep us from the, mortar, from the upper room to receive that outpouring. I think you understand the imagery. You see, an inconvenience to the flesh is a convenience to the born-again spirit. Because our born-again spirit, it wants to become like its father. You know, little, little boys, they want to be like daddy. You know, little girls, they want to be like mommy. Well, our born-again spirit wants to be like daddy. Now, the only way that that can happen is if we hang around daddy. You know what I'm saying? You know, as little boys, some of you as parents may have experienced this. You know, the child, you know, your son, he puts on daddy's shoes. Or, you know, he puts on... Uh, he tries to put on daddy's coat or daddy's pants. And, um, and if you don't watch out, he might go in the bathroom and get daddy's shave cream and put it all over his face and, you know, try to shave his face. But nevertheless, our spirit wants to be like its father, wants to be like daddy. And that's only going to happen if we hang around daddy. That's only going to happen if we spend that time to fellowship with him so that we grow and mature into the image, you know, of the glory of Christ, as Scripture puts it. 
But the flesh doesn't like that. The flesh just doesn't like that. Now, I had this this uh, misguided image for years that there was going to come a point in time in my life that I was going to grow and mature as a Christian to where my flesh wouldn't give me any more trouble. Well, I found out that's not true. Because even the Apostle Paul said, I keep under my body, my flesh. In other words, the Apostle Paul even said, I bring my flesh into submission to who I am in Christ. So what that means is, the flesh is always going to say, no, I don't want to. But we have to continue saying, hush, we're going to. It's a fight. And it's not easy at times. Just like building that tabernacle was not easy at times. It is a fight. Now, when it comes to building, you know, our temple to house that glory for this outpouring, we have to understand that a truth and a lie cannot occupy the same space. It's one or the other. Now, truth is the construction material for that inner temple. And it's that temple that's going to house the glory of God. Well, all the lies have to be dispelled. The Holy Spirit is the construction inspector. And the Bible is the construction code book. So, as we're trying to build this temple, you know, our inner temple, if you will, for that glory of God to house it, the inspector stops by. And he takes a look at the code book. And he compares what we're building to what's in the code book. And unless what we're building lines up with what the code book demands, he doesn't sign off on it. And that means the glory is not going to be there. I remember one time uh, back when we had our garage built. Well, they had to pour the concrete for the approach up into the garage. And I was there the day they were pouring the concrete. And there was a guy out there. And, and it's just it wasn't a really big uh, driveway. So there was just one guy who was going to you know, smooth it out. And this, he was a concrete man. So anyway, the concrete truck's there, and, you know, at, at, the boy inside always wants to watch construction. That's just the way it is. So I'm watching, and the concrete's coming out, and this guy, he's trying to spread this concrete. And it wasn't long before, oh my goodness, it was clear he had a very unique vocabulary. He, I mean, he was letting loose. And then finally, he took this better thing, he threw it down, and he stomped over to the truck. He says, stop! Stop! Look at this mess! Well, the concrete wasn't spreading. I mean, it was just, there was something wrong. And the guy that was driving the concrete truck, he looks at it, and he admits, yeah, there's something not right here. I mean, it was it was a mess. Well, anyway... They had to get a concrete company, somebody who knew what was going on, to come out and take a look at this. Well, what had happened was this. Before the guy came to our house with a concrete truck, he went back to the concrete company to get more concrete put in the truck. The problem was there was old concrete already in it. So he put new in with the old, 
And that thing's churning, churning, churning. So when it got poured out, there was no way. It wasn't going to work. So the concrete company had to come out, jackhammer all that concrete, and start over again. All right. You try mixing a concrete truth with a concrete lie. And you are not going to get approval for your driveway. (laughs) You understand the image here. And so what happens is all the lies have to be dispelled. There is a huge, huge difference between not knowing something and believing a lie. Because, you know, you can be reading the Bible, you read in the New Testament and see where Jesus, you know, come out, demons are cast, coming out, and then and you sit back and you think, I wonder if we can do that today, cast out demons like that. I wonder if that's possible. That's one thing. You don't know. But it's another thing for somebody to come along and say, well, yeah, you can cast out demons, but you can't wear purple socks to do it. You, now, I, nobody's ever taught that that I know of. But what I'm saying is somebody believes that you can't have purple socks on and cast out demons because demons like purple or something stupid. But they're teaching that. And so then you hear it, and now you're believing it. So it went from not knowing to believing a lie. Well, it's, it's not going to work. It's not going to, it will never, ever work. See, if you tell a lie enough, people will start to believe it. I mean, a perfect example has to do with COVID-19 and vaccines. Now, I'm not getting on the vaccine bandwagon here today. I'm using this as an example because it fits so well and everybody can relate to it. On the one hand, you have people who do not believe the vaccine should be given to any human on earth. And they have their whole list of doctors and nurses and uh, medical research people, biology people, immunologists, on and on and on, all the experts with all the documents and all the evidence and all that the vaccine is a terrible thing. But then you come over here to the other side and you've got people who think, yeah, you know, pro-vaccine, and they've got their doctors, their nurkers, their their medical research. They've got all the documents. They've got the research from this lab and that hospital that says, yes, the vaccine is good. Guys, it can't be both ways. It can't. Somebody's wrong. One side or the other, somebody's wrong, which means you've got a whole bunch of people believing a lie. But they believe it. And they speak it. Now, it doesn't matter if you are pro or anti-vaccine. I'm using that as an example of how people are going to believe something. And if you repeat it, if you repeat a lie, regardless of what the lie is, if you repeat it enough, people are going to buy into it. There was one person that I know of. uh, This person believed that the mask was the mark of the beast. And that if you wore the mask, that you were putting 666 on your face, which... I hope you don't believe that. And I hope you never believe that. That's just really different. Now, if I believe a lie and then teach it to others, I'm sincere. I don't mean to deceive, but I'm still telling you a lie. And this is so true in the area of um, 
of spiritual warfare. Look, look over in Acts chapter 19. See, to have the kind of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Book of Acts outpouring and revival that, that we're believing for, when it comes to, um, you know, spiritual warfare, we have to know, understand, and live by the same knowledge and authority over devils that Jesus and the apostles lived by. We have to. It's not an option. And in Acts chapter 19, if you look in verse 11, it says, And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of, of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on all them and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified and many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. And we'll not continue on. But the point I want to make is this. These, he says, you know, vagabond Jews, seven sons of Sceva, and so forth. I mean, did they not use the name of Jesus? Yes, they did. Is the name of Jesus the name above all names? Yes, the name of Jesus is. But what happened? It didn't work. Well, why not? Because they did not understand what Paul understood when it came to dealing with demon spirits. These guys had the idea... Well, you can just believe whatever you want to believe. Use the name of Jesus and cast out devils. doesn't work that way. But if they had understood this the way Paul understood it, for one thing, they would have given their lives to Jesus Christ and they would have understood how to operate in the authority of the name of Jesus as a believer in Jesus Christ and that demon would have come out. So see, they believed something and it was based on the name of Jesus But the thing they believed was a lie. And it didn't work. Well, the same thing is true for us. Um, You know, the apostles, when Jesus, uh, before he ascended, he told the apostles in Matthew 28, there at the end of Matthew 28, he said, I want you to go out and I want you, now I'm paraphrasing, I want you to tell everybody about me and how they can be born again. And then I want you to teach them what I've taught you. I want you to make disciples, in other words. And you read there in Mark chapter 16 where he says, those that believe in my name, they'll do what? Well, they're going to, you know, lay hands on the sick and they'll recover and and so on. But one of the things was, you know, you'll cast out devils. So when the apostles went around teaching, obeying Jesus, Matthew 28 instructions, one of the things they would have done is taught Mark 16. They would have explained about casting out devils, speaking with new tongues, laying hands on the sick. This is what they would have taught as they went out. So that's something then that we need to teach as well. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
And it says here in verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, fully mature spiritually, and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What good works? The works of Jesus Christ. The works that I do, you shall do also. So, this tells us then, if I go through Scripture, relative to, say, spiritual warfare, if I go through Scripture, and I examine what's in the Word of God concerning spiritual warfare, my authority and so forth, it's going to be profitable for my doctrine in that area of spiritual warfare. And, not only that, but... There will also be reproof and correction for what I don't believe that is true and what I do believe that isn't true. You understand what I mean? It's going to readjust me on the inside concerning what I need to know and believe when it comes to spiritual warfare. And then he says, now if you do this, verse 17, then you, as a believer, will end up being spiritually mature Conforming to the image of Christ, if you will, and thoroughly furnished or thoroughly equipped spiritually to do everything that God wants you to do. Then we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So when it comes to spiritual warfare, I cannot simply focus on Ephesians, the second half of Ephesians chapter 6. I've got to get into the Word of God and find out what has God said about this. It's not just a matter of putting on the armor. It's not just a matter of having done all the stand and stand there for. It's not just a matter of being able to identify, let's see, their principalities and powers and the rulers and the darkness. No, it's, it's a matter of just living the victory over these things whether they're a principality or a power or a whatever. You follow what I'm getting? We don't have to, we don't have to find out what kind of badge they're wearing. We just do it. <laughs> we just exercise the authority. Amen. Now, with this in mind, and knowing that Isaiah 28 talks about God teaches us how? Line upon line, precept upon precept. When it comes to understanding spiritual Warfare, understanding our authority relative to the sum total of all of this. We need to go back to the first time we see anything about Satan and authority. So go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Now as we get into this, there's a good chance some of you are going to hear something that you're going to think, whoa, 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 hold on here. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that. Well, then my question would be, well, why don't you agree with it? Well, because that's not what I've ever heard before. Okay, I get that. So what are you going to do with it? Are you going to be like the Bereans, study the Scriptures to see if these things be so? All right, now let's move on. Now that I've kind of warned you ahead of time, let's move on here. Creation has taken place, and uh, here we are, God's looking at everything, but he says, you know what? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every 
creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Okay, now, we see what God said there. Many years ago, when I first uh, was introduced to the whole concept of tongues, gifts, healings, miracles, and so on, and introduced to the whole aspect of spiritual warfare, dealing with demons and all this other. And I don't know if you've ever heard this or not, but one of the things that I heard from different well-known preachers way back was that in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam sinned, what he did was hand total control and authority and dominion over the world to Satan. Now, I heard that. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't, I don't know, but that's what I heard. And I believed that for years. Well, I get into this, and I start reading it, and I thought, wait a second. Something's not adding up anymore. And I want to point this out to you. In Genesis chapter 1, God says, verse 26, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Now notice, over all the earth. See that? And over every creeping thing. And in verse 28, God basically uh, restates this. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And then... We see, and I'm going to read this to you. You don't have to turn to it. Write it down. Look it up later on. But in Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 9. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. So what do we see? We see God having created, and then we see God making a declaration. Now look at this. God said, verse 26, Let us make man... In our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. And that is basically what we've seen, dominion over the work of his hands, which would be all of creation. Let us make man in our likeness, in our image, and let them have dominion. Now, the word um, here in uh, Genesis 1, that word image... It comes from the Hebrew word Salem or Salem, and it means a statue, a model, or a reflection of the original. The word likeness, it comes from the Hebrew word demuth, and it means resemblance, shape, manner, fashion, uh, similitude, pattern. And then the word dominion. It's an interesting word. It comes from the Hebrew word radah, and it means to rule. To have dominion, or in other words, to dominate, to subjugate. And I'm not an expert on the Hebrew or Greek languages, but according to uh, those who are, this word dominion, or radah, 
It means um, its theological use is to identify humanity's God-ordained relationship to the created world. Dominion. Now, I want you to look here in Genesis 1. Look again. God said, let us make man in our likeness, or in our image, and in our likeness, and let them have dominion. So what we're seeing is this. Image and likeness is a state of existence. Dominion is a position of authority. Do you understand that? Image and likeness is a state of existence. Dominion is a position of authority. That's very important to understand the difference between those two because they are not the same. My state of existence and my position of authority, they're not the same. God could have said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. But since I'm the one that made everything, I'm going to stay in control. That's what he could have said. But he didn't. He said, let's make man in our image and in our likeness and hand control over, hand dominion over to them. Two separate things. The state of existence and a position of authority. And in Genesis chapter 2, look at this. In verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. See that? So what God is identifying here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, is a change in the state of existence, but no change in the position of authority. Do you see this? He said, he doesn't say anything about you will no longer have dominion. I am revoking dominion. No, he didn't say that. Because if you remember, in another place, um, I think it was over in Jeremiah, I forget chapter and verse, but God said, <laughs> When my word goes forth out of my mouth, it will not return void, but it will accomplish what I send it forth to accomplish. So God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them have dominion. Then God came back to Adam and he said, now listen, you can eat out of all these trees, but this one tree over here, do not eat. Because the moment that you eat from that tree, you are going to have a massive change in your state of existence. And he never said one word about the dominion. Not one word. And then you go over into um, chapter 3. And you read what happened in chapter 3. Well, you know, Eve listened to false doctrine that was mixed with truth and ended up with lumpy concrete. <laughs> she listened, she ate, handed to Adam. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that says it was an apple, Okay. But she hands the fruit to Adam. Adam eats. And then, uh uh-oh, guess what? We're naked. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) they've sinned. And what happened? They died. God said, in the day you eat thereof, you're going to die. Well, where did that death take place? It took place spiritually on the inside. In the day you eat thereof, you will die. And so they died. Spiritually, they died. Now, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam did this, that is not when Adam handed total control and authority and dominion over creation to Satan. 
Genesis 3 is when Adam died spiritually and had a change of his state of existence. But the dominion was still there. Now, this really goes against the grain of a lot of what we've heard taught over the years. It goes against the grain of what I heard taught for years. But the Holy Spirit brought this out to me in Genesis uh, 1. Let us make God in our image and our likeness and give them dominion. There's two separate things. So now here we are. We're the byproduct. It's interesting. We're the byproduct of Adam's change in state of existence. But we're also the byproduct of God's declaration, let them have dominion. See that? Because His Word does not return void. Now, when it comes to this whole thing of, of, um, of our position, the moment that Adam ate and died spiritually was the moment that he had to change in his, his state of existence. And that is passed down to all of us till we get born again. But fallen man now has the same fallen nature as Satan. And therein lies the problem. Because fallen man is more compatible with Satan than he is with God. And therefore, this makes it easier for Satan to maneuver in this world. Because, like Jesus, when he was talking to uh, the religious leaders, he said, you're of your father the devil. You know, he's a liar. Well, he wasn't saying that Satan had spawned them. You know what I'm saying? He was saying, you share in the same spiritual condition that Satan himself shares in. You're fallen. So then what happens is fallen man tries to approach living in this world with a fallen nature, but also with a fallen mindset. Adam, let me say it like this. Adam had, if you will, the mind of Christ. You know what, I'm, what I mean by that? He had the, the life mind that comes with the spiritual life. He had that. But when he died, that life mind died spiritually with him. So now everything, we're trying to analyze it with a fallen mind and a fallen spirit till we get born again. And once we get born again, we now have a, a, the potential for a totally different understanding of who we are in this world. Now, think of it like this. If I hire you to be my personal assistant, I make you, uh, you know, my second in command, and I give you a title, okay, that's your state of existence. But then I say, you have a position of authority over everything that I have built in this company. So I made you my second in command, but you didn't know what you could or couldn't do. All you know is you're the number two guy in the company, but then I tell you, you have authority over this entire company. You only answer to me. And that's it. Now you have a position of authority and dominion within that company. Well, see, I get mad at you. And I say, okay, you know what? You're not going to be number two anymore. From now on, you are the parking lot attendant. <laughs> but if I don't tell you, you no longer have authority over everything in the company, guess what? You're the parking lot attendant who runs the company. You, you get this? I'm going to have to come back and tell you, you're the parking lot. You have fallen from your position as my number two. But not only that, 
you don't run things anymore. You no longer have dominion over the company. So I have to make that declaration to you that you no longer have that position of dominion. Otherwise, you're going to keep trying to run everything. Who wants to listen to the parking lot attendant? But I have to clarify this. Now, this same principle, the whole, let's make man in our image and likeness and let them have dominion. It's similar to what Jesus said in John 15, verse 7. I'll just read it to you. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. So it's not just simply a matter of being born again. It's a matter of being born again, state of existence, but then bringing the Word in. You see what I'm saying? His words abiding, dwelling. His, his words dominating everything about my belief system so that when I go to God in prayer, what I'm asking lines up with the Word and the mind of Christ, and then I receive my answers. So he says, yeah, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. And that goes right along with what Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 7. After he gets uh, finished there with the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you hear my words and do them, you'll be building your house on a rock that won't fall. You'll stand through every storm. So it's not just a matter of hearing. There's also the doing. And that's, this is see where a lot of Christians mess up. It's because... We hear a lot, but we're not doing a lot. We're born again, but the Word is not abiding on the inside of us. In other words, it's not a dominant force on the inside of us impacting our belief system. And so we pray for a lot of things. We don't get answers to prayers. We think we're doing what we're supposed to, but so many times we don't know. I mean, we think we know we're praying correctly, but if we're not praying correctly, God's not going to answer it. It's just not going to work if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Let us make man in our image and likeness and give them dominion over the work. But if you eat, you die, but the dominion remains. Now see, Satan doesn't want us to believe that. He does not want us to believe that we have this kind of dominion and that the dominion was never removed from man. Think about this. Look, you're in, you're in Genesis 3. Look at verse 17. And unto Adam, he, God, said, Because it was hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and is eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust that shalt thou return. All right, now think about what God is saying here. You're going, to re, you're going to die and return to dust. Because out of it you were taken. What is dust? Well, he's talking here about the dirt. So that means that our bodies are a part of creation. You understand that? I'm not trying to trick you up here. Our bodies are a part of creation. Now that being true, if... Everything, all total, absolute dominion, control, uh, uh, authority, all of this over creation was handed to Satan. There's no way we could be healed. There's no way we could be healed. If the total, absolute dominion over 
creation, which our bodies are a part of, if that had been completely handed over to Satan, we could not be healed. Because God honors authority. And if Satan's the one that has the authority, God's not going to be able to move to get people healed. And this is, this is something that we don't seem to, uh, as Christians, we don't seem to really understand this. We think that, that it's weird. Christians believe, well, Satan, he's in control of everything in this world. Then we say God's going to do whatever God wants to do. Okay, that's a contradiction. Because if Satan is in absolute, total control, authority, and dominion over all of creation, and these bodies are part of creation, you're not going to get healed. It's just not going to happen. Now, if Jesus, if Jesus, okay, think about what Jesus did here in this world, in this earth, when he was walking, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Did he not demonstrate authority? Yes, he did. But if Satan had absolute, total dominion, authority, and control, how could Jesus have done what he did? You know, well, you know, but he's the son of God. Well, let's think about this. If Satan had this absolute, total, complete dominion, authority, and control over creation, there's no way we would see God moving the way he did in both the Old and the New Testaments. There would have been no flood. Think about this. There would never have been a Noah's flood because that's a part of creation, right? And God's the one that told Noah, build the ark because the flood's coming. And I'm going to reboot creation, the world. Well, now, if Satan had control, if he was the one who had, quote, ownership, he could have said, there ain't going to be no flood. You're not going to kill these people. They like me too much. (laughs) Well, doesn't it say that their thoughts were evil continually? (laughs) The earth was filled with violence because of them. Satan would have done that. He would not have allowed there to be a flood. But right along with that, you'd have had no miraculous plagues in Egypt. Because if Satan is in control of creation, which includes the flies and the locusts and everything, if he's in total control, that stuff's not going to happen. Along with that, you'd have never had a parting of the Red Sea. You'd have never had a cloud by day and a fire by night. You'd have never had water from the rock. You'd have never had a parting of the Jordan. You'd have never had a floating axe head. And not only that, you'd have never had water turned into wine. And you would have never had peace be still. And you would have never had a dried up fig tree. But again, people say, but that was Jesus. Well, I know that was Jesus. But let me ask you something. We can read the Bible and we can see an event, something that is directly related to Adam, what he did to die spiritually. And people tell us at that moment, that's when Adam handed all authority, dominion and control of creation over to Satan. All right. Well, Jesus comes along and he's, you know, fig tree dry up, water be wine, peace be still. I mean, he's demonstrating Control and authority and dominion over creation. So my question is this. If I can identify a specific moment when Adam did what he did, then what specific moment can I identify in Jesus before the cross, before the resurrection, what specifically did he do to jerk that authority, dominion and control back out of Satan's hands? Well, he was born. Yeah, okay. But 
What did he do? You see what I'm getting at? He didn't have to do anything. (laughs) He understood who he was. He understood his position. He understood his authority. He understood God never said dominion is now handed over to Satan and all of his cohorts. Jesus knew it doesn't work that way. Satan's been lying to people for all these years and all these centuries. He goes, no, hey, people, watch me. Let me show you what you've been missing out on. Peace be still. Let me show you. Well, you know, people were, their minds were boggled, but along with that, he's casting out demons. Now, if Satan has total control in this created world, how many demons do you think Jesus is going to be able to cast out? Now, some people would say, yes, but he was uh, the Son of God and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not arguing any of that. The point I'm trying to make is this. In the body of Christ, we have acknowledged Satan to have more authority than he really does. And we have, it's, it's like we've elevated him into a position of dominion he does not have that he never had. But when you have an entire planet full of fallen people who share in identity with him as far as their spiritual condition, they're clueless. They don't know what to do. They, they cannot do what we can do. Which is so ironic because now we can do more than they ever did, but we still think the way they did. And this is where we have to completely alter our perception of who we are in Christ when it comes to dealing with the demonic. Because we have an authority in this, in this created world that is now enhanced by the life of Christ in us and the anointing of the Holy Spirit that we received when we were filled with the Holy Spirit. So you couple that life and that anointing with our dominion in this world that God gave us all the way back in Genesis. And guess what? We are more than conquerors. We dominate. That's who we are. We have no reason to be afraid of any demon anywhere at any point in time. Absolutely none. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, or not chapter 1, but we read uh, in uh, chapter 3, how that God told Adam, curses the ground. He says, curses the ground for your sake. Another way to say that is, cursed is creation because of you. Because you're the one that had dominion. You used your dominion and authority to open the door for destruction. This was you, buddy. I handed it over to you. Look over in Romans chapter 5. You'll see this spelled out. In Romans chapter 5. And take a look at what God has said in verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. For that all have sinned. This word world, it doesn't mean planet earth. It's talking about the sum total of all creation. And where he says death, that's not simply physical death. That's talking about an absolute corruption that has impacted every aspect of this planet. You know, it's amazing how we talk about what a beautiful world we have. And there is a lot of beauty in this world. But my goodness, this is a fallen world. It's fallen. 
Can you imagine what it must have been like before it was corrupted? And then if you look in Romans chapter 8, it says in verse 18, For I reckon, see that proves that the Apostle Paul was from down south. (laughs) For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature, meaning creation, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature, creation, itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only, it says they, but it really should be not only all of creation, but us, ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. So what he's saying is, look, all of creation, and it's like he's, he's giving creation a personality. And he's saying all of creation is sitting back, groaning, under the impact of the sin and the corruption that was released through Adam. Creation is falling apart. A lot of people want to blame global warming. Well, I'm not denying, you know, that's, that there's pollution. All right? I'm not denying that. But what I'm saying is this. Global warming or not, this universe is falling apart. Not just the way it is. So even if we didn't have... If, they, if tomorrow they put an end to all pollution... There's no more this, no more that, and whatever. We are going to put an end to global warming. Fine, put an end to it. The planet's still falling apart. And it all goes back to what God said in Scripture. Adam had the dominion and authority. He used his dominion and authority and released that that, that corruption into all of creation. And so now this planet is falling apart. And Paul says, look, creation is waiting for what? The glorious liberty of the children of God. What does that mean? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it talks about that this mortal, talking about our bodies, physical bodies, that this mortal must put on immortality and this corruptible must put on incorruption. In other words, the day's coming. We're going to get a glorified body. I mean, it's going to be like the body that Jesus now has. A glorified body. We're going to be super people. Glory to God. A glorified body. And and creation is saying, I wish this would hurry up and happen, because as soon as you get your glorified bodies, this is talking like at the end, Revelation, at the end. As soon as you get your glorified body, then praise the Lord, we get our own born-again experience. Now look over in Second uh, Peter. You'll see this. Creation is going to be born again. You say, Brother Martin, that sounds just plain old weird. I know. <laughs> but look here, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, for not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then 
that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Think of it like this. That holy fire that's burnt, supposed to be burning on the inside of us, that we're supposed to let burn on the inside of us to burn up all the inner chaff, burn up all that inner dung. Okay, there's going to be a holy fire released against this entire universe and the elements themselves are going to be burned up and there's going to be a new heavens, there's going to be a new earth, new planets, new stars. There's no, no longer going to be disorder in the universe. There's no longer going to be chaos in the universe. Everything is going to be perfect. Everything is going to be perfect. There's no, no longer going to be scorching heat and, you know, sub-zero cold. It's not going to happen. It is going to be a perfect universe. What God wanted way back in Genesis chapter 1, and He said, when my word goes forth, it won't return void. I will get what I say. So in between Genesis 1 and the end of Revelation, guess what? There's a lot of junk going on. However, the day is coming. There's going to be a total restoration of everything. Satan is not the cause of all the bad stuff that happens in this planet. It all started in Genesis chapter 3. Creation was cursed because of what Adam did. Our problem is this. When we, when we take a look at what God says here in His Word, and we ignore what He's revealing then what we start doing is we start saying things like every hurricane, Satan attacked. He, he attacked us with another hurricane. He attacked us with another tornado. He attacked us with another earthquake. He, well, you know what? In, in uh, Matthew, remember when Jesus is prophesying about end times? If you go back and you read that, and he talks about the plagues and the pestilence and the earthquakes in diverse places, not one time does he, see, does he say Satan is going to cause earthquakes, plagues, pestilence. Nowhere does he say that. But he says it's coming. That's because this planet is falling apart. Now, somebody might ask, are you saying that Satan can't do anything? I absolutely am not saying that. No way, because all you have to do is read the Bible and you see that Satan is doing things. So it brings up a question, you know, well, how in the world is he able to do all of this? Well, in Genesis 3, Adam died spiritually. And the Genesis 3, Romans 5, Romans 8 stuff happened to creation. And the result that humans with a fallen nature and a mind absent of the mind of Christ or the new nature mind are operating in a fallen world and we're trying to succeed. But once we get born again, see, that changes on the inside. And Jesus came along and demonstrated to humanity here is what you can do when you have the life of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Here's how you can exercise the authority that God has given to humanity. Here's how it works. And he demonstrated this and shocked a lot of people. Now that we're born again, we're supposed to operate the way Jesus did. You know, um, we should not feel stupid Okay, you remember when Jesus was in the boat, the storm, and the apostle said, Don't you care what's happening? Why don't you get up and bail water with us? 
And the Bible says Jesus was upset with them. O ye of little faith. <laughs> it's like, wait a second, what do you mean, O ye of little faith? He stands up and says, peace be still. And everything's calm. And those guys, they freaked out. They said, who is this that can command the wind and the waves? And I can just imagine Jesus looking at them and saying, Oy vey. <laughs> and going back to bed <laughs> to sleep the rest of the trip. Now I made that part up. You know that. The point I'm making is this. It was no big deal to him. No big deal. So let's think about this. How many times is, is it maybe possible that we could have lessened the impact of hurricanes simply by exercising our authority? What about blizzards? Well, you don't have to worry about that down here. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm getting at? How many times... Now, you're not going to change what we read in the book of Revelation. All right, That stuff's going to happen. But what I'm talking about is we have an authority that we can exercise in this created world, but also against demons. Now, here's the thing. If somebody willingly yields themselves over to the operation of demons, you're not going to alter that person's will. If they choose... And, okay, remember the Old Testament, all these people worshiping these false gods and so forth? Well, that was their choice. And God said, you know what? This has to end. And He told the, he told the Israelites, don't you be doing that stuff. Because if you do, you're in big trouble and I'm going to take it out on you. And we see at times people died as a result of doing this. We have to come to this place of understanding. Like over there in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, you know, it's like God is begging us, please, please yield yourselves over. Grab dominion over your flesh and spend time in my presence and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't remain conformed to this world. Be transformed. Well, see, that's what we need to have when it comes to the whole issue of, of operating in, in the spiritual warfare. We have to get to that place to where we have that mindset of Jesus, that mindset of the apostles when it comes to dealing with, with demons. Because, guys, as we move into this outpouring, as we move into this, this revival, we need to know if they rose up against the apostles, if they rose up against Jesus, they're going to rise up against us. We've got to be ready for this. We've got to be at this place of having no fear whatsoever. Almost, uh, you know, demons start acting up. We should have the attitude of, do you know who I am? Are you, are you talking to me? Well, you, are you talking to me? Seriously. Me. Do you not know who I am? Now, I kind of exaggerated, but really that's where it's supposed to be for us. No fear. Absolutely no fear whatsoever. And this is why Jesus was able to do what he did. Yes. Now, we're going to go ahead and um, and stop for tonight, kind of pick up tomorrow, where we review a little bit tomorrow night, and then uh, go forward because one of the things, uh, some of the things we're going to talk about tomorrow night has to do with this whole thing, you know, of curses and how they can impact people. You know, a curse, boy, I don't want to go too far in this tonight. Um, 
Curses aren't as real as what you think. But if you believe a curse, guess what? Then you're giving it authority to operate in your life. All right. We'll finish right there. Everybody stand. Praise God. Bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Every one of you in here, every one of you in here, you are in a position of authority over creation. Now, we know that the corruption is going to continue until the new heaven and the new earth. So we're not going to change that. But we are in a place of being able to say, peace, be still. See that? Big difference. We can operate in that authority knowing the day's coming. We're going to get a glorified body and we're going to get a glorified creation. Praise the Lord.